Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and today I have a real treat for you. We are going to talk to Zach Terwilliger. He is the former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia and current partner at Vincent and Elkins, a very wonderful Texas firm. So obviously I'm a big fan just because of that, but also Zach and I work very closely together at the Department of Justice, and he's the person I wanted to talk to most when I was digesting what the Chauvin trial meant, and what it means moving forward. Let's dive right in. Zach, we've had some questions from dispatch members trying to make sense of different parts of the case. I just want to start sort of where things have left off. Walk us through what you think the sentencing options are from here. Sure. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's it's great to be back collaborating uh, with you. Yeah. So just diving right into the Chauvin trial, when we look at what's happened, um, obviously there's been a finding of guilt. So what happens next is sentencing. But in between, um, at least under the Minnesota system, uh, it sounds like a couple other things happen based on the judge's instructions. One is that a PSI will be developed, and a PSI stands for Pre-Sentence Investigation Report. And so that report is really something that's going to look at the history and characteristics of the defendant. It's going to look at any aggravating or mitigating factors surrounding the particular counts of conviction. And ultimately, at least based on what I've been able to glean, that will result in a sentencing guidelines range. Um, some of your viewers, I'm sure listeners are very familiar with um, mandatory minimums versus sentencing guidelines. I'm much more familiar with the federal system than the, than the Minnesota state system, but they seem similar insofar as you have maximum punishments for each of these offenses, but then depending on the prior criminal history, um, your history and characteristics uh, and aggravating and mitigating factors, um, you'll get a range. And one of the, the um, ranges that I've heard discussed, even though the second degree unintentional murder charge carries a 40 year maximum punishment is 12 and a half years. Uh, and so that'll be, um, there'll be an interview process of the defendant with his, with his an attorney. Um, and then ultimately the prosecution We'll also um, get an opportunity to respond to the pre the PSI, the pre-sentence investigation report. And then ultimately, um, there'll be a determination uh, about the sentence. And so, um, as you've heard a lot of folks talk about who've covered the trial, three counts, second degree intentional murder, 40-year max, third degree murder, 25-year max, second degree manslaughter, 10-year max. Um, and we've heard 12 and a half years for the two murder counts and four years for the manslaughter count. But I think it would be premature at this point because we got to see what's in the PSI. Um, conceivably, there is no criminal history for a law enforcement officer because otherwise probably wouldn't have qualified. However, you may have things like abuse of a position of trust um, because you had an individual who uh, was entrusted with deadly force and you know, according to, to this verdict, uh, misused it. How much does it matter to a sentencing judge that this is a national case versus what's in the PSI? Yeah, I, that's a fantastic question. I think the hope is, as those of us who are officers of the court, and I spent 14 years as an officer of the court on the prosecution side, and now I'm a few months into my role as a defense counsel, one would hope that 
um, all of that stops uh, at the doors to the courthouse. Um, it's one of the reasons why you don't see televised trials in the federal system. It's one of the reasons why um, certainly in certain places uh, like the Eastern District of Virginia, where I practiced, you're not even allowed to record or take pictures or even bring your cell phone into the courthouse um, because the, it needs to, the, the termination made about what someone did and an appropriate punishment should start and stop with the facts of this case. I think that would be a naive approach given that this has been televised, given the fact that um, this judge and all of the country and in some ways all of the world is looking what's going to happen as this case moves forward. Uh, I think human beings are inherently flawed individuals and it would be nearly impossible not to allow some of that uh, to affect you. Um, my hope is for the judicial system um, that the uh, pre-sentencing uh, report is certainly fair and accurate and no reason to believe it wouldn't be that both sides then get a chance to argue in open court um, for why they believe when enhancements and aggravators apply. And then that calculus, that rubric is applied to the particular facts of this case, which renders a guideline range. And then the judge um, would be in a position to explain why he plans to either impose a sentence below in the heartland or above the guidelines range based on the specific facts of this case. And, and frankly, the, that's probably where some of those um, tensions and stressors and, and the public spotlight could come in. Um, and, but I do believe uh, the sentencing judge will be required to articulate um, his reasons for the sentence. Uh, but there's no question now that all of America got to hear, or who wanted to, got to hear the, uh, and watch um, the closing arguments in this trial. I mean, it's, it, it, that adds a different element. So David and I have talked about potential issues on appeal on our other podcast advisory opinions, but I'm very curious if you saw anything that you thought, huh, that's going to definitely be an issue on appeal. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's, I, I followed the trial. I didn't follow each and every legal argument. I didn't follow each and every objection, which you and many of your Listeners know, um, you know, a lot of times you're objecting or filing motions, even though you're going to lose um, to preserve the issue on appeal. So I don't want to opine on on everything. Um, you know, I, I feel like one of the things you may be getting at is the Maxine Waters statement. Um, you know, this was an incredibly high profile case. It wasn't as though the jury was sequestered the entire time. Um, if it's anything like a federal court proceeding, the jurors were asked each morning, you know, did you read anything? Did you do anything? Um, you know, that would have affected your, um, your ability to be fair and impartial. Have you done your own fact gathering? Did you visit, you know, the, the locus of the crime? You know, if it just comes down to politicians um, who have, you know, made statements, whether it be Maxine Waters, whether it be, you know, someone on the right or, you know, even the president of the United States, um, you know, I, I certainly think it's going to be something that is appealed. Uh, is that enough to change um, the outcome? All the individual jurors were polled. And, I, you know, the question goes along the line, goes something like, you know, is this your true and fair verdict based on, you know, what you heard in court? And I think as long as the answer to that is yes, that that's a tough hill to climb. Um, it, this also wasn't a situation where this was a small trial taking place in the backwater and then someone very high profile came in and decided to opine. Um, and, and so it's a little bit like, I mean, everyone was talking about this. Um, and I, do I think 
comments made by elected officials as cases are you know being delivered to the jury is a good idea? Absolutely not. Is it enough to say that this this was an unfair trial? Um, I think that is a steep hill to climb. It, and part of it will be, you know, well, what was the evidence that was presented? And the evidence in this case, um, I mean, was incredibly strong and incredibly overwhelming as to factually what took place. I mean, we had a video that showed exactly what happened. So I'm sure it'll be raised. Um, and I, I would, you know, I don't know the makeup of the appellate courts um, in in Minnesota, but I would assume it, it would be too, too steep of a hill to climb. The other thing that I do think is interesting that's come up is this whole issue of um, the third degree murder charge. And um, I, you followed it, I'm sure, much closer than I have, Sarah, but where you know, you have to have, you know, be endangering others. Um, and so the, uh, based on another police incident, that charge was pulled and then it was reinstated. And I do think that that is an issue that be very interested to see what the Supreme Court in Minnesota does in terms of, are you really endangering others? Because, you know, as a law student, that was sort of always, you know, the way we looked at the third degree murder charge. Are you doing something that's not just you know, that's so reckless that that you're, in fact, endangering others. So I think that'll be a very interesting um, thing to look at. But there, because he was found guilty on all counts, obviously, that sort of negates the um, the real sting behind that, because you have the, the secondary murder charge with a higher maximum punishment, higher guidelines range. Yeah, I'm definitely following that Minnesota Supreme Court case. Uh, you know, the question is whether others really means plural or if it just means it can be a single person as long as it's reckless and the word others doesn't really mean what the word others means. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of the charges, he was found guilty on three counts. As you mentioned, we got some questions from folks about why they found him guilty on all three, rather than just, if you find him guilty on the top one, you don't get to the other ones. And it gets into this question of if it's all the same incident, how are you able to try someone or sorry, convict someone on multiple counts if it's all related to one incident? And so if you could just maybe explain um, lesser included offenses, related offenses, and how, why we saw a conviction on three counts from just one incident. Sure. Um, and so there, again, um, I'll have to put this through my federal prosecutor lens a little bit, but I think the I think it absolutely translates. So you have both lesser included offenses where you charge something that is um, the most serious offense. And then uh, within that, all the elements are met for a lesser included offense. Um, an example may be, let's say you have a public corruption case and you're dealing with bribery. Well, bribery uh, generally requires more of a quid pro quo versus a gratuity. Um, and so if you can prove all the elements of bribery, chances are you've got the lesser included of um, of gratuity. Um, in this particular case, it's interesting. You have three separate charges, and while if you meet the elements of second degree unintentional murder, um, there's a good chance that you can also meet um, the elements of second degree uh, manslaughter. But let, let's just quickly walk through those because I do think it's interesting. So your second degree unintentional murder, it's what we call in the federal system or a lot of law professors would call felony murder. You basically didn't have the intent to kill someone. You had the intent to commit another felony. Here, it's assault. 
So did, um, you know, the, the defendant- Which is also um, pretty Officer controversial, Sherman. by the way, because it's one thing when like your felony is bank robbery and then someone ends up dead. It's another when the felony is assault, already something violent that could lead to death, which is sort of a, if you will, lesser included of its own and pretty controversial in a lot of jurisdictions. A lot of jurisdictions have gotten rid of that type of felony murder. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, there, I, there was something I read online the other night where um, it's, it's a developing story, but it sounds like there was a bar fight. There was a beloved um, women's hockey coach who got punched in the head, slipped um, and hit, or excuse me, got punched in the face, slid down some steps and, and hit his head and, and has died. And so, you know, is that going to be a situation where the individual is charged with um, second degree murder because there was an assault, uh, you know, ultimately resulting in death? So, you know, when basically what the way it was always described to me by my my law professors was you're transferring intent. You, you had the felonious intent to hit and it might not have been um, it certainly wasn't a premeditated desire to kill, um, but that gets transferred. And so you wind up with second degree unintentional murder. Um, when you look at the third degree murder charge, it's a little bit different because that was the one that I always um, thought about in my mind in law school of driving 100 miles an hour in a school zone. I mean, you're perpetuating an act that's imminently dangerous to others and you're doing so, it's so bad, it, it shows almost a depraved heart. And if you're driving 100 miles an hour in a school zone and the lights are flashing and you see kids crossing the street and you don't slow down, um, is, is that really what we're talking about here? So, you know, is it a lesser included because it's third degree versus second degree? Yes, but the intent, at least the way I look at it, is, is different. You're acting extremely recklessly um, without, with, with wanton neglect um, for others. Whereas in that first degree, or excuse me, that second degree charge we're talking about, you, it, you had the intent to commit an offense. Um, and then when you look at the second degree manslaughter, um, you basically have culpable negligence where you've created an unreasonable risk and you consciously take the chances of causing death or great bodily harm. So gross negligence and recklessness. So they're not in the traditional sense. It's not just, OK, um, count one has four elements that are all met. Count two is the same. It just doesn't have malice or forethought. So I, I, I actually don't look at this as just a straight lesser included. They are related offenses um, and they are. They are offenses that have um, distinct elements from, from one another. And so it's not atypical for prosecutors to charge varying degrees. Like in this case, it's almost like a ladder from most serious to least serious, and it gives them uh, the maximum flexibility. There's a danger there, and maybe we'll get in to talk about it. There's a danger in charging a case that way because it can lead the jury to believe, well, you're not really sure what happened. Um, and it gives the defense an opening if they wanted to, to try and get a compromise verdict is, look, you know, what what my defendant did or my client did was grossly negligent, um, but it was not cruel and depraved. It was not um, an assault. This was, you know, subduing somebody. Um, and so one of the things that I thought was interesting, uh, based on the closing argument that I listened to, that the defendant's counsel really went for an acquittal across the board versus, okay. Um, this is not going our way. There's videotape evidence. Um, we've heard some of the most harrowing testimony on direct examination, you know, you could ever have in a trial, um, including from law enforcement officers. Um, let's let's see if we can wind up in a situation where you're just convicted on count three and you're looking at a guidelines range of four years versus versus these others. 
Yeah, you and I talked about this a little this week, and you said that really surprised you. Why would defense pursue a strategy like that? The case wasn't going very well, and there were two decisions that I thought were interesting. At the end of the defense's case, the defendant was asked whether he wanted to take the stand. He declined to take the stand. And then, as you said, they didn't try to get that compromise verdict. They went just for the straight not guilty when I think anyone sort of watching that trial thought, well, that's not going to happen at this point. Your own witnesses kind of fell apart. So walk through as a defense attorney now, what are you advising a client like that about whether to take the stand? What are the factors that go into that? And why would you go for the not guilty at that point if you think your case is sort of falling apart? Sure. And, and taking the first one first, and maybe I should have said at the outset, Sarah, and maybe we'll get to this at the end. I mean, this is, I know we're talking about this in a very objective sense, and we're looking, we're dissecting this the way you would come in and, and look at certain elements. And, and I do just want to make sure your listeners know, I mean, this, this was a horrific crime in my mind. And I said so at the time at, as U.S. attorney. So I don't mean to be so objective about it now. There's obviously a tremendous amount of appropriate emotion and, and larger issues at play here. So just let me get that out there and, and then we can go back to dissecting the specific decisions. But I don't mean to be so removed from how important historically and nationally this case is. Um, in terms of your first question, you know, the defendant testifying. So as a prosecutor, I always would hope the defendant would testify because it would really give me an opportunity to expose um, the falsity of their alibi, of their excuse, and, you know, when you're the prosecutor, you're, you're holding so many of the cards. Um, it's, it's not necessarily that it's a game of gotcha because you've turned it all over in discovery, but you really have dug in and learned more about this incident um, than even the participant uh, is likely to know because you've gotten all the forensics, you've gotten cell phone data, you've, you have the whole picture and you have so many tools in your, in your arsenal. So I always would love it when a defendant would testify. So I think in general... Um, a lot of defense counsel will advise their client, like, we're not going to be able to prepare for every question that you're going to get asked um, on cross-examination. And by opening the door and by waiving your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, like, there's no going back. And so you've got to be very careful that you don't commit malpractice by putting your, your client on the stand. However, I do think the reason you see certain individuals testify is, is in two instances. One where you have someone whose defense is actual innocence, which is I wasn't there, it wasn't me, I didn't do it, um, or you know you have either the wrong person or there has been such a misapplication of of the facts to to what actually happened. The narrative is getting completely taken out of hand. Um, the other time you do it is where you got to throw a hail mary. I mean, to use a sports analogy, you only use a hail mary or an onside kick when you really don't have another choice. I don't want a Monday morning quarterback too much about the defense case. I wasn't there. I wasn't there during the prep. I have no idea about this now convicted murderer's um, mental state and, and, and how, how he would have come across. One reason I thought it was interesting they didn't decide to put um, the defendant on the stand was because if things, at least as they appear to, you know, I think agree that the case was very strong for the prosecution is to humanize the defendant. I mean, here's an individual who wore a uniform and went to work every day and it, at least ostensibly, you know, was charged to protect and serve. 
And so why not tell part of that story? Why not tell the story of, um, you know, the things that he had done correctly in his career? Why not make this an individual who, and this goes back to what we talked about before, maybe he even admits on the stand what he did was reckless um, and unreasonable. But this is what was going through my head. I know it doesn't seem like a lot to you, but the people heckling me got me really scared. And, I, and this exact moment was going through my head. Is this going to ruin my career? Things like that. And that, that would have humanized him. May have made the jury, jury hate him more. I think he would have been subject to an absolutely decimating cross-examination where you go through frame by frame what were you thinking now, Officer Chauvin? What were you thinking? So at this point, when he's you know begging for his life, and and we actually watch the life expire from this man's eyes, what were you thinking? And, and so it may have been that was just too much of a risk, too decimating. It would have been you know to use my sports analogy, you know, an onside kick that you know had no hope of success. Um, so I you know that. That one, I'm not sure the defense got wrong. It's easy to say in hindsight because it was a clear guilty verdict across the way. Um, for purposes of appeal, um, the record won't have his statements in there. And, you know, the goal on cross-examination um, is, is to basically confront the individual um, and get them to admit uh, what they did wrong. So that may have been a theory there too. Um, and but then, sort of fascinating of strategy, when you think about yeah. the, like, what we're about to talk about, which is the strategy to go for a full acquittal rather than to just go for conviction on the lowest level charge to try to get him out of those two higher level charges. That's where taking the stand to me could have been very helpful. You take the stand and say, you know, to your point, yeah, it was reckless. Yeah, this meets the elements of manslaughter probably, but I had no intent. I wasn't trying to commit a felony. You know, I didn't have the necessary intent for that top one to try to to go for that compromise verdict. I mean, definitely a strategic decision. They did not go for the compromise verdict. They didn't. And one thing as you were talking that I was just thinking about, I mean, the one, one advantage that an accused has in a case is they get to hear what every other witness says. I mean, typically, and, and I apologize because I don't know the answer to this in this question, but witnesses are, um, there's the rule on witnesses and, and only the witness testifying can be in the courtroom, maybe a case agent. Um, on the prosecution side, but the defendant has heard everything that has been put forth against him. And so typically what you see is notes being passed from the defendant to their counsel when there's direct examination, like that's not true, or ask them about, you know, December 14th, or ask them about this. And so one advantage you have in, as testifying as the defendant is you really can rebut a lot of what you've heard. Like, let's say the use of force expert said, you know, I specifically teach, you know, this, this element, this element, this element of, of the, um, you know, de-escalation protocol. Well, this would have been the time where you could hear directly from the defendant if there were any defense to that. And, and it may be that they're just, you know, there, there wasn't any, any way to make hay out of that. Um, and yeah, to your point, Sarah, absolutely. If you testify and that would be your opportunity to come out, um, very strongly through your direct examination that your lawyer leads you through and say, look, I, I did not, I cared for this, you know, individual. It was not my intent to assault him. It was not my intent to do this. Was was now in hindsight, I reckless? Yes, but let me tell you, I completely lost track of time, those sorts of things. And obviously I'm saying this not because I believe it's true. Those are just potential defenses. So um, yeah, I think 
It's a tough call. Um, look, some of it may be client driven. I mean, as as a defense counsel, you know, you represent a client and the client may say, no, uh, strategically, I hear what you're saying, but I, in my heart, don't believe I did what they're accusing me of doing. So, no, you are not authorized to go out there um, and and try to go for a compromise verdict. It's not worth it to me. And I, you know, we may never know. We probably will never know what those privileged conversations were like. But I have seen plenty of defendants hamstring their defense counsel by saying, look, I understand that this may get me out of jail sooner than the opposite, but I didn't do this. So no, you're not authorized to do it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to broaden the lens here and talk a little bit about what this case means in the broader context. This was a watershed moment in a lot of ways. A conviction against a police officer in a way that I think is fundamentally different than, for instance, the last major, uh, and this was a plea deal, but um, you and I were both at the Department of Justice during the Slager trial, where it was a hung jury at the state level in South Carolina. He pled out to the feds. This was an officer who pulled someone over. The person ran and the officer shot him several times in the back. It was caught on video. Um, first of all, that trial wasn't nationalized the way that this one was. It you know, the in the end, it was a plea deal. So it was just a very different feel, I think, for the country. This feels like a turning point of sorts when it comes to prosecuting officers criminally for actions that they've taken in the field. As a defense attorney and as a former federal prosecutor who worked with law enforcement every day, uh, do you think this has changed the game? And how do you think it will affect uh, law enforcement moving forward? That's a really it's it's so hard for me to separate myself out from from this this particular incident. And I, I think it'd be show a lot of hubris if I tried to articulate what what this means going forward. So I think all I can do safely is say these are these are my impressions. Um, and, and I really want to caveat them because I, I don't certainly don't claim to be um, attuned to these issues in such a way. Um, this has not been my life's work. I've been fortunate enough, I think, to, to hopefully play a role in some of the solution to this. But um, where I sit now uh, as a private practitioner, I do believe that when you have a videotape, and I said this at the time, when you have a videotape of an individual in uniform kneeling on someone's neck uh, in broad daylight versus one of these split second incidents like we're also seeing uh, play out in the national media right now where there's a split second decision and uh, at least based on what I've seen someone's wielding a knife and, and it is it's life or death you you shoot and extinguish the threat or perhaps someone gets stabbed you know in a vein or a heart and they die I, I think that's a very different set of circumstances to to what we saw and I think one of the reasons, this case uh, has had an outsized influences because even those of us who have worked day in and day out with law enforcement and know that they have to make split section, split second life and death decisions saw this case in stark contrast. I mean, I, I remember 
using the word murder um, way, way back last summer. And that is not something I would have done lightly. Um, this one was just so uh, conscious, shocking. And, that, and I don't mean to, to, to say that others have not. Um, I've heard people talk about Emmett Till and Rodney King as, you know, the, the, the precursors to this. And I know, obviously, you hear um, individuals like Attorney Ben Crump and, and Reverend Al Sharpton talk about Breonna Taylor uh, and, and others. And so I, I'm not close enough to it to parse out each one of those. Um, I think this trial is different for a couple of reasons. One, it was nationally televised in a way that I frankly don't remember a trial being so focused other than the O.J. Simpson trial. I just it, it just every, the, all of America had the opportunity to sit in that courtroom. Two, um, I think because this happened in broad daylight and there were multiple opportunities over a nine and a half minute period for something to change that didn't. Um, I also think uh, you have law enforcement officers, including the chief, coming out and saying, you know, this was wrong. This was so far beyond, you know, appropriate conduct. Um, those individuals who have studied the, quote, blue wall, who have studied the circling the wagons of, of law enforcement, um, that didn't happen. I also think you have a vast majority of people who, with their own eyes, came to the same agreement of what happened. There have been other instances, I think, in the past uh, where there have been police conduct where um, 100 people could watch the same thing and, and 60%, 60 of them say one thing, 40% say another. I, I, have, I have come across very few people that don't view this um, in a similar light. Uh, I also think that because of that, it's really been a moment for many of us um, who've served in law enforcement roles uh, it, it's brought everything very much into, into clear contrast about exactly what happened. The Biden DOJ has said that they are opening a pattern and practice investigation against the Minneapolis Police Department. I wonder if you would explain to our listeners a little bit about what that means and about what Jim Comey dubbed the Ferguson effect uh, and how that can affect law enforcement and policing in these communities and uh, you know, you've talked to me a little bit about how some of these communities want more police, not less police, and how all of that fits into what the Department of Justice's role can be in this in the Biden administration. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that people who have studied the Department of Justice much longer than I have would say is they've always been a champion and a bulwark of civil rights. And so the pattern in practice uh, is, is really interesting to me. Uh, because here you have the Civil Rights Division, by statute, given this ability to go in and do, quote, pattern and practice investigations. Um, so the Civil Rights Division is one of the divisions within the Department of Justice. Others that you've also heard about are the Criminal Division, the Civil Division, the Environmental Natural Resources Division. It is one of those entities. Um, and so they, they were given uh, the statutory authority by Congress. And so the first thing that they do um, is go in and conduct uh, an independent investigation to see if there's any persistent patterns of misconduct, such as stops, searches, arrests, excessive force, discriminatory, discriminatory policing, violation of constitutional rights of suspects. Um, and in doing so, they do interviews. 
they certainly interview law enforcement officials, community members, stakeholders. Um, and then once they've gathered that data, once they've gone in and investigated, um, they issue a public report detailing their findings. And if there's nothing systematic there, if it's a, a situation where it's a small, you know, bad apple or one person who needs to be fired and it's not that the whole system needs to be reformed or a whole police force can be reformed, it gets closed. Um, however, if they find something that's systematic, then they work towards remedying that conduct. And so that can be a negotiated agreement and it usually incorporates specific remedies. And then it's overseen oftentimes by a federal court. If they can't reach uh, a negotiated uh, agreement overseen by a federal court, then the civil division can initiate a lawsuit and secure those reforms. I think what's and interesting that's what we is see DOJ, in, the, in the media, you'll see that called a consent decree. Consent decree, exactly. And and it's interesting because um, you know you you'll have to go back and look, um, but there was a consent decree with the Chicago Police Department, and there was at least some scholarship written that said, okay, there there needed to be reforms, but the way those reforms were implemented. Um, you know, it required a great deal of paperwork for any police-human interaction. Now, obviously, if that's going to save lives, that's important. If that's going to create overly burdensome um, uh, reporting criteria for your average patrol officer, such that they are no longer going to do um, appropriate things to, to stop crime, to walk the beat, well, then you've kind of got to push-pull there. And so I, again, I'm not in a position to say consent decrees are bad, you know, you never want to do them, but there is, if the goal is to ensure there's not a systematic violation of constitutional rights, I think we all agree that is a positive thing. Uh, I certainly do. The way you implement that in such a way that protects the community ensures that, you know, there are not um, uh, killings that are occurring by law enforcement or that people's rights aren't being systematically violated, again, I think we all agree that's incredibly positive. But if, it, if you do so in a way that's um, burdensome to the point where police are unable to protect and serve, um, at least there's been some scholarship out there that says, you know, you're going to see crime go up um, and you're going to see uh, much more um, victimization and, and things of that nature. And, and the other point you mentioned, Sarah, was well, what about these communities where they want more police, not less. And, and so one example that I can give is Petersburg, Virginia. Um, it's uh, south of Richmond, Virginia. It's a, a community that is 76% um, African-American. And um, I work directly with the police chief of that community. They had very um, productive uh, marches and protests um, following the, the murder of George Floyd. But they, they had the police march with them. Um, and there was there was good synergy between law enforcement there. Um, they had a great police chief who's since retired and his, his deputy was also great and he's now the chief of police. And there, when I would talk to those community members directly, they wanted more police, not less, because they had um, such rampant violence, um, drug dealing in, these, in their neighborhoods that they wanted them cleaned up so their kids could wait for the bus, so that you know, their, their kids could, you know, not worry about gang crossfire and things like that. And so um, I think we all are in agreement that we need to live in a society where all everyone has those opportunities and, and the police are part of that. So I, I do think it's, it's one of the things that folks are really going to have to 
wrestle with and, and look at is, you know, if we are transferring Monday from one aspect of patrol officers to de-escalation strategies to mental health, you know, how are we also going to make sure neighborhoods are secure? And how are we going to do that in a way that um, people of all races feel feel safe walking down the street? So it's, um, it is a, I think it's a real challenge. Like so many things uh, that are happening in our country right now, it didn't take long for this to become kind of a partisan volleyball that kept getting hit around. You had, on the one hand, uh, people on the right saying, this is going to demoralize police. This was one bad apple. And you had people on the left saying, no, there's systemic problems here. And police should watch this the same way that everyone else watched it. And I'm curious what your experience was in talking to law enforcement and working with law enforcement during a lot of these trials and cases and examples that were happening throughout the country for the last several years. Which one really represents the views of law enforcement? Yeah, I wouldn't want to speak for all law enforcement, so I'll make it anecdotal. And and it's not just the Eastern District of Virginia. I did have the I was fortunate enough to interact with law enforcement from all over the country through trap through official travel and, and other summits that I participated in. You know, there's a saying that um, I think a former NYPD officer uh, may be credited with, which is, um, you know, there's no one who hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And so I know there is a large segment of police out there um, that are looking at what Derek Chauvin did um, as, you know, truly horrendous, and it makes all of their jobs more difficult and more dangerous. Um, I, I also have heard from law enforcement that are terrified of doing their job and basically under a strict scrutiny standard. And as a result, um, it's this was their dream or maybe even wasn't their dream, but it was their vocation or it was their job. And it's the risk just isn't worth it anymore um, because there is going to be such a rush to judgment that, um, you know, even if they did everything right and are ultimately exonerated, they'll be judged in the court of public opinion. Um, and, and their, their lives will be over their lives will be in danger and same with that of their family members. So it, it's interesting. One of the things I've heard about this other incident that occurred, um, regarding the alleged stabbing where deadly force was used, I've heard people all across the political spectrum say, we need to treat each case individually. We need to treat take each case incident by incident. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and again, as a white male who has had an incredible amount of privilege um, in my life, it's probably not for me to opine on, you know, which way should we do it? As a prosecutor, former prosecutor, now defense attorney, I do think you have to look at each incident on its merits. And I don't believe every incident is the same. Um, I've been threatened in my life. I've had people come after me and my family uh, because of my role as a prosecutor. And um, I will tell you when that was my mindset just for a belief, brief period in time in my life where I felt um, hunted uh, and I felt like I was on a, on a, on a forgive the pun, but a hair trigger, um, there's things I would have done to protect myself and my family because that was my mindset that I felt like everyone was coming after me. So um, I think it's a, I think it's an incredibly difficult issue when you hear that individuals don't feel safe, um, driving their car, that individuals don't feel safe 
doing things that you and I, Sarah, you know, don't think twice about. Um, at the same time, I do believe law enforcement puts themselves out there uh, each and every day, and the vast majority of them um, do so to the best of their abilities. And when your job includes using deadly force, the same way doctors, crane operators, soldiers, tractor trailer truck drivers, um, they make mistakes. Um, and, and some of those mistakes are criminal, and some of them are, are civilly negligent. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, I've got two final questions for you. Zach, you've had this wonderful career. We have young people who listen to this podcast and I've had several email in and actually say they want to be federal prosecutors. They want to be you when they grow up. I'm curious, what's the best career advice you ever got as a baby prosecutor? The best career advice I got as a baby prosecutor was no matter is too small and treat every matter like it's the most important. And so I think there is a tendency, and I certainly could have fallen victim to this, that, well, I want to be um, the next uh, Pat Fitzgerald or Andy McCarthy, um, you know, or Merrick Garland. And I want that career case that's going to, you know, make me a household name. Um, the criminal justice system, especially uh, now that I'm sitting on this side of the V, is an incredibly um, potent force. And the power of a prosecutor is a tremendous amount of responsibility. I mean, just sending a grand jury subpoena to a company um, can cause you know, mass layoffs. Um, and, and you are, you, you go and interview someone and it may impact them the rest of their life. So my advice would be, um, do it with humility. Um, make sure everything you do, you are, you don't ever want to just mail it in because you perceive something to be small. It's important. And, and the small things add up. The other thing that someone told me was nose to the grindstone, eyes on the horizon. Uh, meaning you want to work incredibly hard at whatever is in front of you, whether it's a piece of collateral litigation, whether it's a, quote, small-time case, um, but you also don't want to bury your head in the sand and just do the same thing over and over again. Keep your eyes on the horizon for those opportunities. Um, and, uh, and I do think it's a much harder job now than it was um, you know, 15 years ago when I joined. Um, and uh, to anyone who's interested in it, um, I encourage you to... Uh, go to court, um, go watch a trial. Uh, there's a great, great story about a woman named Michelle Roberts, who is one of the best 
defense attorneys um, in the country. She's currently works for the NBA, but prior to that, she worked for the federal public defender, excuse me, the public defender service in DC. And um, she learned a great deal about trying cases because as she tells it, um, her home uh, in public housing was not air conditioned. And so her mom would take her into court because it was air conditioned and they would watch trials uh, when she was little. And so you can you can really be shaped and watched by what you see in court. And what she saw um, really prompted her and pushed her uh, to go into um, criminal defense. Uh, and so I'd encourage anybody who's thinking about being a prosecutor, take the time, go watch a few trials, and then decide what you want to do. All right, last question. There's a lot of law that's shown on TV or movies what is the prosecutor or legal TV show or movie that you think is closest to your experience? So that's a really tough one because I'm sure like many doctors um, or firefighters, like I can't watch, um, I cannot watch lawyers on TV. Everyone tells me I should watch Billions. And a lot of times when people have no idea what a U.S. attorney does, they say, is it like Billions? Um, so I, I, don't, uh, I don't watch those shows. I've seen plenty of legal dramas. Um, I don't think any of them hit anywhere close to the mark. Um, so I'm I sorry, this is all the wrong movies. answer. The answer is a few good men. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say um, there are certain certain speeches and certain things that I, I you know, I have I have adopted and look back on. No, I use movies and TV as an escape, uh, and so I would encourage you, you know, to watch, uh, you know things that are as far away from what you think you may want to do as possible. What's your most recent binge? Uh, I, so I don't binge watch as much, uh, anymore because, um, you know, when you're, uh, when you're out there, um, on the defense side, I feel like I've, I've always got client work to do. Um, but I did, I did watch, uh, the queen's gambit, which, um, was, uh, was very, interesting. Um, I'm not a chess player and, uh, you know, it was that one. I I can't say that I thought it was phenomenal, but, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I did, um, Tiger King and the Michael Jordan expose and, you know, and then I watched Yellowstone and, and those were all fantastic. And so I feel like I'm sort of, you know, scraping for something new. All right, Zach. This was Zach Terwilliger, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, and now the hardest working partner at Vincent and Elkins. As you can tell, he doesn't even have time to binge watch TV like a regular human. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.